Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Judith May Fatala, who is the author of Killer Fandom, Fan Studies, and the Celebrity Serial Killer. Judith, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. Um, could you start by talking a little bit about how this book came to be, how you got interested in um, serial killer fandom and fan culture? Sure. Um, I am probably best known as a fan studies scholar nowadays. I do some work on open access publishing as well, but I think that as as a researcher, as a researcher, fan studies has been one of my primary interests. And my first two books were um, rather more traditional, I suppose, in terms of, of fan studies. My first book was on fan fiction. My second book was on music subculture, specifically emotional hardcore or emo. And um, I am a true crime enthusiast. Notice how kind of carefully I phrase that there. Um, I have always been sort of in my non-academic life, somebody who consumes a lot of content related to true crime, um, a lot of podcasts, a lot of uh, television shows, books, etc. And through that, I sort of became aware, if you like, of of the the more taboo or the moose the more niche or the more pathologized area of serial killer fandom is in it since I was vaguely aware they existed but I think if people think about it most people are aware of the existence of serial killer fans if they sort of um as as I mentioned in the book um there's been a a fairly steady stream of weird news stories um, more or less pointing out in in more away, more or less pathologizing ways the various fans that that serial killers have had or celebrity serial killers, and those interests then sort of came together and collided in that I started to wonder, well, fan studies now is fairly well established field we have sort of fairly set and, and accepted ways and frames of looking at at fandom and i wondered in what ways would the the frames that we use typically in fan studies be useful to apply to this more taboo or more i guess more secretive perhaps more anonymous form of fandom and what ways it wouldn't be um and I looked around a little bit and I saw um, a few academics beginning to look at quote unquote dark fandoms. And I, I don't like this term because it, you know, it has, I don't think, I think it's a racist pedigree and we shouldn't use the term dark when we mean sinister or we mean taboo or we mean um pathologized or whatever so I just tend to call it what it is call it serial killer fandom call it school shooter fandom just just use the term of what you're talking about rather than trying to um put it under this heading of quote unquote dark fandom yeah I thought it was interesting I um have recently talked to someone who wrote a book um or has written a series of books on dark tourism and so I found that especially interesting in thinking about like how do we label um, because that's sort of this all encompassing. And if you visit and then a lot of this book, at least, was on um, much of it visiting Holocaust memorial sites. Right. And so then like there are specific sort of niche spaces that you could talk about as opposed to labeling everything dark. Right. I think that that's where it came from I think it, it, how it's come into fan studies is crossing over from tourism and heritage studies because as you say there is this sort of subfield of quote-unquote dark tourism and I think that fan tourism is a subfield and people just kind of picked up the terminology um in a kind of uncritical way and I'm including my past self in that you know I you know even despite the fact that I'm a person of color I'm as inculculated in the in the racist pedigrees of the English language as anyone else, you know. Um, so it was really when I did um, a, a different interview with a with a radio show on a network called BTRN that the host kind of opened that conversation with me, for which I'm very grateful, and I like acknowledge that in the book. Mm-hmm. So 
we have this serial killer fandom that and it, it was interesting i had a class yesterday with a few students and we uh, the book was sitting on my desk and um so one of them said people actually like follow serial can they do this and another one was like yes they do they do it's a whole thing um so uh for people who i think there's people who know and and, and know and see this out there i think there's people who know there are kind of fans of serial killer but you really talk about it being a culture fan culture right so can you kind of talk and ground us in that and, and, and sort of when you're thinking about this, what you sort of see and, and sort of how you position these folks that you looked at. Well, I think that fandom is a, a difficult term and I argue in some ways that it, I think that in fan studies we overuse the term community. Um, I think we sometimes stretch community too far as a as a theoretical term. And um, I argue in chapter three that there is some notion of a serial killer fandom and that there is some sort of positive boundaries to it, but it's community in a weak sense. And that is um, really to do with the, the relative anonymity of the space, the very rapid turnover of tumblers and TikToks and and materials which are frequently banned or get taken down and reappear it's very pseudonymous or or anonymous it's very unstable so I think we need to be like a little bit careful of the term fandom as denoting a group or a community although there is some there is some there is some kind of exchange of, of affect and 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 bonding in the ways that we see in more traditional online communities um but i thought that that was probably the theoretical perspective that was least usefully applied from what has been done in fan studies already so i kind of you know look at things like textual poaching look at subcultural capital building look at digital play and then there's this chapter on a serial killer fan community and i think that was the weakest frame to apply to it and and digital play was the strongest um so yeah did does that answer the question or Mm -hmm. yeah 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 right um and I, as you're talking, one of the things I thought was interesting uh, in the book and thinking about your methodology and, and doing this work is that there's one point, at least you said, this could disappear. I have to take a photo of it, right, because of the sources of media. So can you talk a little bit about that and the re- and, and kind of um, how you research this and how how kind of ephemeral you've, some of the some of the the data becomes because of um just where it exists and and how you're trying to find it and the you know social media and how that plays out well i use the wayback machine and the internet archive a lot to to archive as i was studying um i think the internet archive is a hugely important resource and one that is worth fighting for that kind of goes into my other area of interest which is open access publishing um and For example, possibly the strongest demonstrator of community that I did find was a subreddit called Hybristophilia. Hybristophilia was not a term I'd I'd come across before, but apparently it is a recognised, I guess, psychopathology, which means attraction to violence or attraction to the potential of violence. And as I stored a lot of that data in the Internet Archive, um, I stored a lot in my own in OneDrive of my university, which is password protected, etc. And as soon as I finished the data collection, that community was banned and purged. So I was really lucky. Um, but that's just one example. Another example would be um, the tumblers that I explore either get banned or they get taken down because they're being targeted by what uh, fans refer to as antis. Um, In other words, people who, quite interestingly, often set their own true crime consumption up as normal and um, target people whose consumption of true crime they consider to be pathological, which, as I argue throughout the book, 
is not such a, you know, an easy binary to draw. And it's more like really a spectrum than a binary. And I'm not sure that, you know, any consumption or production of true crime as a media product can make a claim to some kind of epistemological innocence here. We're all implicated in this. Um, fans, as I say in, in chapter one, you know, fans didn't make serial killers into celebrities. We all did that. The media industries did that. The public did that from going back to the invention of Jack the Ripper, you know. Um, so that's one reason that, that the resources go down is because they receive, as they call it, hate or targeting by Andes. But then what would typically happen is the Tumblr would go down and then it would pop up again with like, x1 on the end of the name or just a variation so i did a lot of locating of material on tiktok and tumblr by searching tags and searching search terms which was much i mean it's not reliable because the tumblr search function isn't reliable but it was more useful than trying to follow certain blogs on my dashboard because they kept disappearing or they went down or whatever. Right. And so and you mentioned as you answered um, that you kind of looked at your first chapter looks at sort of engagement before fan studies. Right. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? How I, I really, I, you know, and I've always heard that, but I really appreciated how you talked about sort of the, the, engagement with serial killers with Holmes and with Jack the Ripper and how people kind of um, were infatuated or were part of that sort of serial killer interest in serial killers much earlier than we think of the sure. most sort of modern day ones. So I personally found this really interesting when I started um, looking at it. So I think that the our conception the, the term serial killer dates probably to the 1970s, but I think that our conception of a serial killer in the, the Western world generally is dated to the invention, the construction of the figure of Jack the Ripper. And I think what's important to understand is that Jack the Ripper is an invention of what I call proto-convergence. So we're used to the idea of media convergence in, in the contemporary media sphere. And Jack the Ripper is an invention of the um, newly literate tabloid consuming Victorian public and penny press. So obviously this was the time at which um, cheap penny newspapers were becoming popular where more people were able to read at a basic standard and more people were able to access newspapers uh, cheaply. And also the birth of what is called, sometimes referred to as new journalism, which we associate with a tabloid style of reporting. So the public appetite for sensational news was very high. And newspapers pretty much invented Jack the Ripper. I think I should say here, um, the police, I'm not, that Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murderer are not the same thing. So the person who actually carried out these murders at Whitechapel was known to the police fairly early on to be the Polish barber, Aaron Kaminsky, as has now been more or less confirmed by DNA sampling. Um, this was, you know, if you go through the police records, you can see that they had a reliable witness, but, you know, he was schizophrenic, he was already institutionalized, and the witness didn't want to testify because they didn't want the execution of an insane person on their conscience. Um, the invention of Jack the Ripper as this figure onto which Victorian fears of otherness, of um, foreigners, of barbarity, of the of medicine, of you know, there's this one theory that it's a mad doctor of 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 medicine being out of control, of science being out of control. This is an, a whole other thing, and the public 
collaborated with great fever in this via, for example, letter writing. The, the name Jack the Ripper is from a postcard that somebody sent to one of the newspapers claiming to be the killer. And there were loads of these postcards. Jack the Ripper is just the most famous one. It's not real, by the way. None of them are, are authentic, almost certainly. Um, but people writing into the papers claiming to be the killer, claiming to know the killer, describing in great detail what they would do next. Um, personators, I found this so interesting. People describing in their diary how they would dress up and pretend to be the killer. Almost, is it is it cosplay? It sounds like cosplay. So I think that this sort of of public of what I call media proto convergence is how is how we invent the myth of Jack the Ripper, and also I mean H H Holmes was a real person, and so it's sort of to a to a lesser degree I guess, but he um for example um very much catered to the public appetite for the legends of his own monstrosity and seemed probably gr greatly exaggerated the number of people he actually killed and the the amount of, of baby traps and so on that were in his his quote unquote murder mansion um and then i move on to sort of the 20th century when we get into moral panics around serial killers as sex symbols so I think a lot of people know the the story of the girls turning up to Ted the trials of Ted Bundy dressed in in ways that look like the profile of his victims but I think the interesting thing about about this is that that was the first publicly televised trial um and I look at the way that the 20th century media kind of celebritizes different serial killers and pretends and assumes a pose of moral authority and neutrality whilst very much contributing to and constructing them as celebrities, which goes on to this day, as in, you know, not alive and well on Netflix right now, go stream, you know, you can stream it right now. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because um, I have a a teen a, a new teenager, right, a thirteen year old, and like that middle grades here in the United States seems to be the time when the serial killer and the Ted. I remember like was it a year or so ago where the Ted Bundy uh, show came out, and um, that becomes this time where there's this obsession with like these serial killers and what is this like and um. And you mentioned, and, and so the next chapter you talk about sort of textual poachers and in that you mentioned the My Friend Dahmer, uh, the uh, cart the graphic novel, right? These are sort of accessible too, to a younger audience. Um, so it continues to become uh, something you can e more easily access or sort of take in and become part of that culture. So can you talk a little bit about that too, that kind of you talk a little bit about Jenkins textual poaching and how, even though it, that idea has changed, do you still see some importance in it, especially in these online cultures? So what you're doing in that chapter and sort of how that plays out. Yeah. So Textual poaching uh, was the phrase that Henry Jenkins made famous um, for the techniques by which fans of a media product will adapt narratives or material to write their own stories or make their own fan art or write their own songs um, of mm, copyrighted media products, which at the time he was writing, tended to be more underground and more secretive. Um, and now it's sort of uh, media properties bank on it. And um, he has largely disavowed the metaphor of textual poaching and saying that, you know, seeing fans as sort of these relatively powerless, relatively secretive activities. It doesn't make sense anymore in this kind of landscape of media convergence where, um, you know, massive franchises depend on and incorporate and court fan activity and, and so on. And 
what I thought was interesting is that in some ways, the fanish material around serial killer media kind of fits better into the older model of textual poaching than into a newer model of convergence culture. And that, the main reason for that, I think, is that it's not, it's not um, economically, you can't incorporate it economically. You can't sell it back to the to the audience um in this in the way that you can say game of thrones fan art for example uh hbo um co- for example commissioned a book of fan art which then the art fan artist has handed over the copyright hbo sells the fan art back to the audience so that's a good example of incorporation of, of fan activities and I don't think really it's that surprising that there's fan fiction about serial killers or there's fan art about serial killers because there's so much media about them, then why wouldn't there be? Um, There's probably fan fiction about everything. And particularly, as you say, when we have these accessible texts like My Friend Dharma, which I guess is a kind of fan fiction in a way, um, people then adapt and make their own own texts from it, which in some ways, poaches and inverts and repurposes the themes and storylines and so on of the mainstream media, and then in other ways consolidates what's already there. And I think it, in some ways, because it is more underground, because it is more secretive, because it does exist in this relatively closed sphere because it can't be reincorporated and because fans use it to their own purposes in some ways fits better into this older lens of textual poaching than it does newer ideas about convergence culture um and of course that kind of makes sense when you think that fandom as a whole used to be pathologized in the way that only certain kinds of fandom are now. Right. So you sort of look at that and talk about that and look at sort of how um, fans are creating um, fan fiction, fan art, and and then also kind of how people are reacting to some of that, which is, which, and you mentioned this earlier, but I thought was really interesting to think about that it is not this, um, the ways in which people, um, there are some things that are acceptable. There are some things that are not acceptable. And that line moves very, moves often, right. In, in sort of this sort of fan space. And so throughout, I thought that was really interesting. And one of the things that you mentioned that I wanted to ask you about, or have you talk about a little, because I think it's important is you talk about how queerness and, in fan, it, it often in fandoms, especially in fan fiction, is something that is acknowledged and accepted. But with Jeffrey Dahmer, um, that's become something that people kind of um, ign- often ignore, right? Um, and so, can you talk a little? Because I thought that was really interesting um, and something to that I never really like thought about when I was thinking about this. Could you talk a little bit more about what you were seeing with how people were? Um, talking about Dahmer in ways that were sort of ignoring and erasing his queerness? So that was a peculiar finding. Um, We often imagine that fan culture, queers, popular media and sort of rights in queer relations and characters where we find them absent or lacking or insufficient in the source text. And... First of all, I should say a word on the media construction of Jeffrey Dahmer as opposed to, say, Ted Bundy. So Jeffrey Dahmer is generally constructed in the popular media as a monster with, well, yeah, that's what the Netflix series is called, isn't it? It's called Monster, you know, with all the um, historical baggage related to queerness of the monstrosity metaphor so he is both a victim and a villain he's a tragic monster sort of this Jekyll and Hyde struggling to control this inner 
beast and this sort of ties into broader narratives of queerness as monstrous as tragic as um doomed etc whereas if you look at sort of the con cons i mean i think um another academic whose name escapes me right now put it very well when he said that Ted Bundy, a heterosexual man who killed women, had to be constructed by the press as an aberration, which, you know, arguably he's not. He's the peak of a patriarchal structure that results in the, the death of women every, every day. Um, so he's constructed as an aberration, an absolute, the opposite of what everybody expected to happen. But Dharma is constructed almost as like the fulfillment of what we would expect of the tragic, monstrous queer, okay? And in fan fiction and fan art, people just tend to kind of gloss over and elide his, his queerness and... Um, either like write him into a redemptive heterosexual relationship wherein he sort of is able to suppress the inner the inner is it Jekyll or Hyde that's the bad one I forgot oh, yeah. In, yeah Hyde right Hyde yeah, right, Dr. Jekyll. To, <laughs> to suppress the inner Hyde um or just sort of ignore it and I thought so are we are we using like heterosexuality as a kind of corrective, you know, to to this narrative of monstrosity, which is almost the inverse of what people think that fandom has historically done, which is like to write in in narratives of legitimating narratives of queerness where they haven't existed. Um, so that was that was a really striking finding. As to why that is, I think it shows the enduring power of the queerness monstrosity connection, even at a subconscious level, um, for a lot of people in a lot of popular culture. I, I mean, I, I said in, in the chapter that one of the categories, I assigned the, the stories that I found to categories and I called one of them fix-its, you know, these kind of redemption arcs. And pretty much all of the redemption arcs were about, like, were heterosexual love stories. Yes, if you just you know, fell in love, you'd be fine. Well, fan fiction doesn't <laughs> operate in a vacuum, you know. It's uh, the, the redemption of heterosexual love is such a powerful cultural narrative that um, it seems to inflect this discourse very strongly. Yeah, so, you know, so we have this, your next chapter um, talks about, like, and you brought this up before, looks at affect bonding and boundaries. And, and, and you know, you have this question of, is there really a serial killer fan community and what that means? So can you talk a little bit then about, like, how you are looking at, um whether or not there is a community and what sort of what is going on in these spaces. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I think that we can sometimes stretch the term community too far in fan studies. Um, can we really kind of call people with a shared interest who have no real connection with each other other than alike members of the, the same community? I'm not sure. But there are aspects um, that academics have recognized as fundamental to fan communities, such as gift culture or circular giving, wherein uh, people create um, texts, create videos, create art without the expectation of an immediate um, return um, due to the understanding that creating gifts for the community generally enriches a community and results in one receiving more gifts in general than one uh, than one puts evidence to. So a kind of contribution to a commons, if you like. And I did see some elements of gift culture 
I did see some av- some evidence of bonding, particularly on Reddit, where users tend to have more stable identities than they may, for example, on TikTok or Tumblr. Although, as I say, that that Reddit community got banned. Um, I saw some evidence of role play, which you know some people think of as um, evidence of a community. But I think that what's quite important is that. A lot of people think that uh, for a community to be called a community, it has to recognize itself as a community and have some conception of an outgroup and an in-group, some conception of those who are like us and those who are not like us. And the fact that serial killer fans are pathologized and othered by people who consider their interest in true crime to be normal and respectable, in many ways reinforces this sense of a community. And actually, you know, they fans um, comment on that themselves. They talk about how um, aunties play their part in defining the communities. And there was this one thing I found in Reddit, someone saying, if there were no aunties and if hybristophilia was more accepted by society, would there be as much of a sense of community in this sub? And then people saying, that's a good point. Um, So in some ways, I think that such sense of community as there was is created by pathologization, although it is also to some degree created by circular giving, and by shared interpretations of media texts. Obviously, um, if one is identifying oneself as a serial killer fan, one is interpreting media narratives in a, in with at least some degree of sympathy or empathy towards um, an individual that most people would not feel those towards. So it's this kind of sh- minority view shared narrative as well as uh, circular giving and and definition by pathologization. But again, I don't think we should overstress the the community here because it's in a weak sense at best. Right, and and so you move from that to look at this sort of cultural capital, right, or subcultural capital, as you call it, and kind of how um, posts and and how sort of these fans find a way to um, get sort of notes or feedback or likes and, and these kinds of things. So can you talk about that? So there is though out there a following of people and there is some kind of cultural capital in participating in these spaces so can you talk a little bit about that in those chapter that chapter there's there's some and i think that probably in terms of the creation of texts the closest thing i found to big name fans would be certain video makers certain people who make youtube videos that were relatively popular and appreciated so fan vidding um if people don't know is sort of the the um editing of images and clips of, from television or cinema to appropriate music or music that the fan has selected and editing it in such ways to construct certain narratives and there were some people who um had developed a certain uh, reputation for being very good at this on YouTube. So those were probably the best example of evidence cultural capital in terms of production of a text through many approving comments, through many likes, etc. There were also some... There's also some evidence of this on Tumblr where you can, for example, like and reblog posts. So um, I, I, I analyzed which kinds of posts received the highest number of notes and reblogs, and they tended to be sort of high effort informational posts, high effort aesthetic posts, jokes and humor, which I come back to for the final chapter. And those that demonstrate a fair amount of skill with things like Photoshop and related technologies. But 
I go on in that chapter to kind of talk then about the collection and display and curation of objects and its relationship to economic capital, which I think is quite a unique, not unique because other fans collect items, but I think the situation of what's referred to as murderabilia is fairly unique. Yes, I don't know which chapter it was in, but there, um, you talked about somebody even having, um, was it some kind of, not necessarily a body part, but right, like having bones or having this or making sure like they have this authentic piece of like murder fandom in their collection kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, the collection of objects hasn't received a huge amount of attention. Well, it's starting to now, but historically hasn't achieved as much attention in fan studies as as the study of text, because I think that, you know, some academics want to shy away from the taint of consumerism, if you like. Um, But there is a a kind of thriving industry for the collection and auction and resale of artifacts associated with serial killers and the the real sort and, and the display and ownership of them is really one of the biggest claims to to cultural capital within this sphere with authenticity and the, the sanctity of touch being the sort of trump card in there that is kind of goes back to to Benjamin and the aura of the object. Like, um, I look at the website Cult Collectibles, and I did a separate article on the proprietor of Cult Collectibles and Social Capital, um, where he has, he has, he is not, he brokers um, murderabilia between buyers and sellers and now has kind of a reputation for that which he's built up since since ebay banned it in the early 2000s and because he now has this reputation within this sphere and this cultural capital within this sphere people looking to sell these objects or who have inherited them and don't know what to do with them will actually seek him out you know and so he's got many items associated with Def- Jeffrey Dahmer, such as his glasses, um, other things. He's got, and, and I gave the example where he's got next to each other an original family photo of Dahmer as a child with his father and a print of that. The original family photo, the bidding opens up $5,000. The print is $15. And they are the same photograph. It's just that one carries the aura of touch and the other doesn't, and they come with sort of certificates of authenticity and so on. So the most striking examples and and evidences of, of subcultural capital were definitely related to objects, touch, and authenticity. Um, and I know that many people kind of, this is, this collection, the collectioning of murderabilia is something that, a lot of people find very confronting and objectionable. But the more I thought about it, the more I started to question, well, what's the diff? Where is the line between these objects and some of the objects you'll see in the British Museum or, you know, in, in, in any other museum or any other relic of violence you know again if you're gonna start and and the the site proprietor himself said something which i thought was quite striking which was that he understands why people would find what he does objectionable but he doesn't understand the selective objection because if you're going to criticize people making money from crime from violence that is a valid argument to make, but the guy who made the Ted Bundy tapes has made more in the last 20 minutes than he's going to make in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a fair point. Yep. Yes. And and um, it, it's okay when you're selling it on Netflix, as you talk about, or on like, but um, when he's trying to curate um, and, and we do if we put it in a museum, then it's okay. Right. These yeah, kinds exactly. Of, it's mm-hmm. very, 
the the objections which we kind of feel instinctively when we start to unpack them are very selective. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the, your last chapter, you talk about this serial killer fandom as sort of digital play. And you say right away in the you know chapter that this is we don't often think about this as play. Um, but can you talk about how you kind of um, see the digital play playing out and, and and how you sort of cultivated and curated this chapter? Yeah, I mean, I read Paul Booth on digital play a few years ago. And I thought that he's very, it's very true what he says, that it's a mistake to imagine that fandom and fandom activity, particularly online, is necessarily earnest. Like there's this there's this idea of the earnest internet, which is probably mistaken. You know, I mean, I think that we we have to be careful about assuming serious intent and a lot of this is a lot of this is a kind of play and on one hand it's what the fandom I observed is is a form of what Booth calls coloring inside the lines so the lines already drawn by mainstream fascination with serial killers and the endless stream of content it might be just inside the lines at the edge but I don't think that it's necessarily beyond them. Um, I think that a lot of this is what... So Booth discusses parody, right? And he focuses on what he calls sociocultural parody. And he introduces this idea of what he calls pornographic parodies of major franchises. So like this Star Wars porn or porn of Indiana Jones or whatever. And he says that this is parody highlights what is already pornographic about mainstream culture and the undercurrent of sexuality underlying mainstream media texts. And I thought, the more I looked at this, that there's a parallel here, that a lot of the fan texts generated around serial killers are exposing the already extant fascination with serial killing and the media's endless profit from it and this kind of circular relationship between the consuming public and the media industries. I mean... Sorry. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and you have these examples, which I thought I was trying to find, like the, um, you talk about uh, one example that I, you know, where Dahmer is placed in green next to Kermit the Frog, right? Um, sort of memes that are created, uh, descriptions of serial killers as people you regret swiping right on dating apps, right? Um, some of these things that, uh, show fans knowledge of the serial killers and knowledge of this sort of space but also kind of play with it and you know make light of it so you have to have some knowledge of the serial killers to know you know what you're going to regret swiping right on right um so i think like that's really interesting too in how that kind of plays out and how um they're you they they really use what they know and what their interest is to kind of um challenge and sort of push at and play with these things yeah and there was also kind of a lot of what i referred to as nonsense in a slightly technical term which is to say like content that deliberately rebuffs any easy interpretation or meaning is just sort of there in a, in a way that we deliberately don't know how to respond to it. We don't know how to interpret it. Um, and a lot of it is kind of self-consciously humorous and it's deliberatively provocative. It's deliberately edgy but I use the term edge because that's why I'm arguing that this is actually operating at the edge of the discourse predefined by the media industry as opposed to subverting or contradicting it. So so you've written this, right, about sort of killer fandom and serial killer fandom. And do you see um, any kind of like what's... <laughs> 
don't know what's next with the serial killer fandom is the best way to phrase it, but I'll phrase it that way anyway, right? Um, do you see this kind of like, is the celebrity serial killer going to sort of continue? Um, are you seeing new, because you talk about people who are all for have like, um, are, have already been you know are already dead have already like you know did these things so do you see this as like there are these like you know you talk about Dahmer and Warnos and Ramirez and Bundy um but do you see this continuing with sort of newer iterations of serial killer like where do you see it going <laughs> well that's the infra I mean there's kind of two aspects to that question one is like where do I see work on this going and one of the good the good things about this book is that it's open access digital and it it's an in iterative form so anybody can like go on media studies press right media studies press website and comment on it and tell me what you think and we'll kind of ha- open a conversation about it but the interesting, although I have to say it's been it's been quite hard going. And I mean, I, I had this conversation with the publisher as well. It's been fascinating, but it's been quite hard going at times. And um, I want to talk about it more, but I'm also slightly depressed now. No, not really. Like, I mean, I want to talk about it more, but it is it is hard going sometimes. Um but it's funny because in some ways, the serial killer is, I think it was David Schmidt who said this, a nostalgic figure of domestic and understandable threat in a world in which, ex, you know, threats to humanity's existence of global warming and nuclear war seem, you know, much less comprehensible and bigger and much harder to make news about and also harder for us to think about and in some ways the kind of figure of the serial killer is almost like a nostalgic domesticable understandable threat because you know there's no kind of contemporary equivalent is there I mean obviously there's still people who kill people but I wonder if the serial killer as celebrity is a 20th century phenomenon. Right. Yeah. And in reading your book and in thinking about that, I was wondering, you know, something similar, kind of trying to think of like, would there be something equivalent in 2023, right? To these, like the folks that you're talking about who, um, who sort of were part of my childhood, right? In, In that kind of thing. So I thought like, it was really interesting to think about, um, that and when where that plays out um well i mean true crime is going through another resurgence at the moment in terms of media um and a lot of this was kind of brought on by the the massive success of the podcast serial um and that incidentally is a um a, a text that makes me question my own consumption of true crime media in the sense that it's about a person whose family is very much alive and aware of what is going on and the fact that there is now this juggernaut media property based around the murder of their sister and daughter and a perspective on whether or not the accused is guilty you know and that really kind of when I started to think more reflectively about my true crime consumption, that sort of brought me up short a little bit. So it seems that, I mean, true crime media isn't going anywhere. It's getting it's getting bigger, if anything. It's going through a resurgence, although it's always popular. It just waxes and wanes. But it's almost that it's like a nostalgic genre now. And the fandom is almost a nostalgic genre. I mean, most of the 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 serial killers in this sample were dead before the people making this content were born mm-hmm. right so yeah. i guess the question is why is that i mean yeah yeah i know yes i find it really interesting right to think about and to think about that there continues to be this sort of interest in these people who have long been dead yeah um, yeah mm-hmm well, why are they, Why do we still have, you know, new Netflix film about them every right. week? 
you know. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. And we sort of continue this consumption. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about and how this plays out. So, uh, I mean, we've been talking a while, but so I'll ask you my kind of final question and which is, is there things you're working on? I mean, either with this book or something new, like what are you working on? What's next? Um, self, you know, promote, go. (laughs) So, What I'm working on right now is, I mean, as I say, this book was in gestation for a few years and it's been, in some ways, it's been a fascinating journey. I'm so grateful to have done it, but in some ways I might need to like let it breathe a little bit now. And I have, you know, I have other interests in fandom, particularly around music and, and musicianship and so on. And also I'm doing a lot of work with the Open Book Collective. This book was published through Media Studies Press, which is one of the presses that is is part of our collective, making books open access um, without the necessity of book processing charges, which is very important work. Nonetheless, I am wanting to set up a network and I'm applying for some funding. I don't know if I'll get it yet, but I'm applying for a small grant to set up a network for fan scholars who are interested in fandom related to true crime and criminals. I'm taking the word dark out of there before it becomes enmeshed and um, kind of seeing what, you know, this is an embryonic subfield. You know, there's been a little bit of work um on on mass shooters and so on and you know what what's the what's the direction from here opening a new research pathway i mean my particular interest as you've gathered is on how and why certain forms of production and consumption around true crime are culturally and economically legitimate and even respectable and some forms are very much not and why does that happen and how does it happen? And why does everything that girls do get pathologized? Mm-hmm. Well, it has been super interesting talking with you. It's been really fascinating. Um, Judith May Fatala, who is the author of Killer Fandom, Fan Studies, and The Celebrity Serial Killer. Thank you so much for talking with me for New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you so much for having me.